0: There is a saying that a picture paints, a thousand words. As we have been going through the Gospel of John, there are a number of pictures that um, are given for us that really help us to see Jesus Christ, who He is, what He has done, and how He relates to man. And so far, in particular in this Gospel... Um, we have been given these wonderful images that really reach back into the Old Testament. He is the new wine that really brings ultimate satisfaction. He is the temple um, that ultimately is the sacrifice. He not only is the sacrifice, you know, the temple, he is the sacrifice in the temple. And he is the serpent lifted up that brings, or really he's the ultimate savior. And, And these are wonderful pictures that we did, we did talk about, as we went through those passages, now there, there, were, there was discourse, and there were things that were happening along the way, but in the midst of those stories, we have these wonderful pictures rising up, kind of like Coit Tower over in San Francisco, just rising up in the midst of all the other buildings. There it is, a picture of Christ, a beautiful, uh, wonderful display of who Christ is, and, and helping us understand some aspects about His nature, and character and his interaction with man. So John continues to paint uh, a canvas with three pictures this morning, a little differently, um, but these these pictures really are are stressing the supremacy of Christ. And I I want you to see as we look through this passage, it was a long passage for us to read. Maybe as you're reading, you're like, how do all these three things kind of work together? And there's a flow here. Verses 22 through verse 26, really just talking about this conflict that the disciples were having with uh, what was going on with this issue of baptism. Then there's a comparison. It's John speaking, really, about his role and function in his relationship to Christ. And then ultimately, this is all driving to this wonderful, incredible picture and understanding of who Christ is. And it may be, it may be a section of John's Gospel that you haven't seen before, and this happens, when we come to John 3, what verse do we usually think of? 16. But listen, there's more nuggets of truth in this chapter that are absolutely amazing. And, and verses 31 um, through 36 are, are stunningly amazing um, in their uh, wonderful portrayal and, and helpful way of, of describing who Jesus is for us. And so this morning, uh, we want to do the best that we can to, to understand Uh, that that this is driving toward painting a picture to show us that Christ is supreme. And that will all kind of make sense as we go along here together. Now, one thing that's helpful, I think, just uh, as kind of a preparation here, is that if you have like an NIV, um, you will uh, will see there that the, the interpreters took verses 31 through 36 as being John the Baptist's words, and uh, other interpreters, in particular in the um, ESV, which is what we use, understand those words as being John the Apostle's words, the John who's writing the Gospel. And that would be how I understand this to be, because the the things that are described in those verses really are reaching back into the, the story that John is unfolding and presenting for his readers. Remember, he's presenting evidence so that they will believe, and ultimately through believing they will have life, Right, remember, that's John 20, 30 and 31, and that's the whole purpose of the book. So, this morning we want to begin right at verse 22. Notice with me, if you would, please. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Jordan countryside, and, were, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enyon near, near uh, Salim, because water was plentiful there and people were coming, and being baptized, little parenthetical note here, for John had not yet been put into prison. So John is anchoring the story, making sure we understand exactly where it's taking place. But isn't it interesting that Jesus and his disciples are off, they're baptizing, and John is continuing to be baptizing. We'll actually find out as we read chapter 4 that Jesus wasn't actually doing the baptizing. It was the disciples that were doing the baptizing under his care. But there's these two different baptisms that are going on. And so uh, we want to begin here with what I'm calling <clears throat> um, the problem of our human tendency. And this story really unfolds, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful picture of human nature and I think will help us understand ourselves and how we interact with one another and, and uh, ultimately we'll have a purpose. But what is, the <clears throat> what is the problem of our human tendency? It is this, to take what is good and to find a way to let sin enter the picture. Anyone have a habit of doing that? There's something good going on. There's something really, you know, wonderful that God is doing. And, you know, we just find our way to get sin into the mix of it and really cause damage to what God is doing that is good and beautiful, right? And, and just, just think about that as we as we move through this passage together. Let's read. Um, verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. I, I love this, this little sentence here for me personally because it says, a discussion arose. No, it was an argument that arose. That's what that word discussion is talking about. Okay, this was an argument. So if you ever have an argument, you have biblical grounds to call it a discussion. I just want to make sure that we understand that, right? So there was there was a heated discussion here about in particular, um, purification or ceremonial washing. And that was a discussion they were having with uh, a particular Jew on that subject. Verse 26, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So there's this argument that they have with this Jew and that argument really results with John's disciples developing an attitude and coming to John with their complaint. The Jews don't agree with our baptism and our ceremonial cleansing. And, let add to that, Jesus is now baptizing and all, all are going to him. Well, that isn't exactly true. That's kind of a distorted perspective. What is, what is going on here First of all, I would say this, that there is an eclipsing uh, fear that is taking place here. Remember, John's purpose was to do what? His purpose was to come and prepare the way for the Lord, right? John communicated that. He communicated that with his disciples. They knew what was going on, but the practical realities now were, were coming to be. So there's a feeling of being of being upstaged, there's a feeling of being phased out because of Jesus' baptism. It's understandable. All right? Secondly, I think there's also this rabbinical loyalty. They're loyal to their rabbi. They were loyal to John. They were his disciples. And so, you know, their rabbi is, is losing a little bit of ground here. He's maybe not as prominent as he, as he was just a, a few weeks earlier. If you remember in the story, people in droves were coming out to John for baptism, Right? And he was, when they were coming, saying, you know, you know, the Lamb of God is coming. Look, there he is. I mean, and he had this, this ministry. It was a wonderful thing that was taking place. And his disciples, they're following along. And I'm certain that uh, that that being the case and looking at what we have here in this text here, that there was some pride kicking in. There was some jealousy kicking in. Um, there was some panic probably kicking in. What's interesting is that disciples often have have a, have more zeal for their teacher's uh perspectives than their teachers themselves often followers are more zealous than the actual leader is okay and that was certainly true with the followers of calvin and you might want to say other uh leaders in the past where they actually you know hold the things that maybe that person did not hold to okay um so it's just one of those dynamics i think there's another dynamic going on here there's emotional exaggeration emotional exaggeration all right and this is where i'm saying Not all the people were going to Jesus. Look back at verse 23. Remember we have this, you know, Jesus was doing this with his disciples. John is doing this with his disciples. They're both baptizing. Verse 23 says, people were coming and being baptized. All right? So what are the disciples saying? But all are going to Jesus. That was an exaggeration. But it was rooted in an emotion. All right? We we often use those those big words, right? All. All. Never, you never do this, right? You always—it's that kind of stuff. But it's rooted in some kind of an emotional response to the circumstances. Look at verse 26. Look, they say, look, all are going to him. He's baptizing, and all are going to him. D. A. Carson says that these words were resentful and embittered. So this is not just kind of a, oh, you know, Jesus is over there, he's doing baptism, you know, they're all going. No, this is there's passionate, there's there, there's, there's emotions, there's feelings, there's fears, there's panic, there's worry. There's all sorts of things that are taking place now um, in, in the lives of these disciples and their understanding of what's going on. But again, verse 26 says, it's really interesting, isn't it? He says, and they came to John saying to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. In other words, the one that you told us about, the one that you said was coming. The one that you were preparing the way for, you know, he is, in a sense, now getting all the glory. Well, yeah. <laughs> right? But the reality of that was kicking in. The hardship of that was now being, you know, it was being before them. And the John's, John's disciples knew some things. They knew, first of all, going back to chapter 1, verse 20, John said, I am not the Christ. They knew that John was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Again, that's chapter 1, verse 23. They knew that John was saying, I'm not worthy even to tie the strap of the one who comes after me. They knew that. He had said that. He had proclaimed that. He knew what he had come to do. But the reality is that ministry for them was changing. For the disciples and for John. And what the rabbi their rabbi had foretold, had prepared them for, was actually taking place. And now they're fearful, they're resentful, they're panicked. So what is, what is our human tendency? And I, I wanted to just to talk about some things here, maybe just to kind of help us get in to the, the way we can drift when there's something good and allow something That would be sinful to enter in, okay? So hang with me here as we talk about a number of things. And I'm not necessarily talking about a specific thing that's happened, so please don't connect this to anything in particular, but it's where we live, all right? Let's just talk about um, comparing one home group with another. Ouch, you say, ouch, good, all right? We have home groups in our church. We have two of them right now. And um, imagine, if you would please, that you're, it's Monday afternoon and you're sitting with one of, your, one of your friends at Starbucks over coffee, your friend goes to one home group, you go to the other, and they ask you, how did your home group go? And you're kind of reflecting over the night before and you think to yourself, you know what, it, it, went, it, went, it, went, it was good. There was a, you know, there was a few of us that were there and we talked about the sermon, we shared some thoughts together, we prayed together, it was really nice, it was really, really helpful. Well, how was your home group? They said, oh man, let me tell you, the evening was, it was absolutely amazing. There were so many people present. I mean, it was hard even to find a seat because there were so many people that were there. And it was young and middle-aged and some seniors were there too. It was just kind of this multi-generational thing. It was absolutely wonderful to have that kind of a mix that was going on. And, and you know, we're, we're, we're growing so fast, we, we might even have to to split real soon here and and, and our teacher, the person who's facilitating our home group, I mean, he was just really fantastic because, because he was just engaging us in these questions and bringing things out of us, and, and the discussion was deep, it was penetrating, it was powerful, and there were tears, and, and, and you should have, man, the prayer was absolutely amazing. It went on, and some people had to leave because they got to get their kids and but they just continued praying, and it was just absolutely Fantastic. And to top that off, Mrs. So-and-so made that incredible tiramisu and everyone just just enjoyed that. Now, let's be honest. That's, that's kind of a hard discussion, isn't it? I mean, for you who, who went to home group and it was good and it was nice and everything, you're hearing that. You're thinking to yourself a lot of different things, right? Potentially. This is an opportunity for something good to turn into something sour because something is going on in your heart and you're thinking to yourself, well oh, wait a second, uh, you know, I want some of that. I, I want that, that deep discussion. And I would love to have been in the context where people maybe were, were tearful because they were talking about the things of God and, and sharing how God was at work in their lives. And You feel kind of like you, you've missed out and like I'm stuck here and I'd like to be there. And you kind of get all those feelings and it can turn really sinful quick when it's actually all good. Now, just understand this. No home group is ever gonna be exactly the same every time, right? And just wait a couple of weeks and it may turn up where you're at and it will change. And the other one would be like, well, there was a few of us here and it was kind of, you know. And and, and we're we're not interested in the wow effect. We're interested in the steady growth reality of what it means to be the body of Christ in the context of a home group. But my point in bringing this up is to say, you know, it is so easy for us to allow sin to enter in and to think things and to battle things. Maybe we're not verbalizing them, but they're going on in our heart, and something that has been good turns into something bad. Just like here we have the, these disciples, Jesus' disciples, John's disciples. Baptism is going on. It's all good, but now this thing starts to stir up because they're feeling eclipsed. They're feeling like their rabbis is being upstaged and being phased out all right? Here's another one, all right? Um, comparison over churches. So, and also, I'm not thinking about any particular church. This is just illustrations to help us understand some things, all right? So, you and, you and your friend, different friend this time, are, are talking, and uh, you ask this question. It's about November or so in the year, and you say, hey, what is your church doing for Christmas Sunday? Would that be a common question for two people that are in two different churches and yeah absolutely okay well this person says you know I'm really it's funny that you asked because at our church we're going to have a Christmas pageant and let me tell you about it Um, it's going to be a full stage production with real animals we have invited Kirk Cameron to come and play Jesus okay (laughs) Um, the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir are coming just to kind of do backup for us. Um, and it's the kind of thing, listen, everyone in the community is going to want to come to see this. Not just the believers, everyone is. In fact, you should come. And I can get you some tickets. I, I, I know some people. Um, so bring your family. And then they say, so what's your church doing for Christmas? And you say, well, I think we're singing some carols and... Um, our children's choir is going to do a couple of specials. Is there the possibility there of sin entering in? Thoughts that would be fleshly kicking in? Trying to compare yourself and this, this, this change and being kind of eclipsed and like you're not doing enough and all that. You see how these things could enter in? I, I'm just painting a picture here. These are feelings and emotions that we go through when we're wrestling with things like this. And sin can enter in. A church maybe has the ability and has the, has the talent and the resources to do something big. But you know what? You may be glorifying God by singing carols and having children's choir and that's it. And God doesn't want you to do any more because that's exactly what he wants your church to be doing. And yet, what is good can be turned upside down because of flesh kicking in and jealousy or envy or comparing and it, it can get ugly right here's another one this is more personal i figured I, I threw that out at you now let's talk about something that would relate to me um, comparison with speakers in a couple of months um, we're going to have a visiting speaker come in because uh, i'm not going to be here on that particular sunday and listen when he comes i want him to honor god and i want him to bless you with the word Um, When I return, I want to hear upon my return good things, that he was a blessing to you. And so when I return, I will likely hear some of you say these things. He was excellent. Um, I've I've been truly blessed by his ministry. I have never heard such an excellent preacher. It was amazing. Pastor, it was amazing how he preached from John 3 and taught us things that we had never seen before. He was amazing. He was excellent. Thank you for inviting him. In fact, if you're ever gone again, you should ask him to come back. By the way, when is that that you're going to be out of town again? just having fun here, but I'm trying to make a point. Would it be easy for me at that point in time, when this person's been a blessing, to allow bitterness, comparison, jealousy, feeling maybe underappreciated or fill in the gap. Here are some good things that are going on and yet we can so easily turn it into something ugly, right? So this is the tension of what's going on with these guys. So wouldn't maturity in Christ for us say that is exactly what I hope for, that's exactly what I want to hear, that I chose a person to fill the pulpit here that would be a blessing and would do the goods for the glory of God? That's what I want to hear. That's that's exactly what we want to take place. But sin loves to raise its ugly head and and cause harm and, and just really just just stir things up. And so what are we to do in those times? Well, I think what the answer from this passage is this, is to, to understand the power of a humble tenacity, to humbly uh, respond, but with tenacity. You know, where do you get that from? We'll, we'll get that from this passage here um, as we look at how John responds to this whole circumstance. John the Baptist had every human reason to get sucked into the complaining and the comparison that his disciples were, were, were bringing up. Yeah, you mean, yeah, I spend all my time preparing and pointing and focusing on the one that's going to come, and this is the thanks I get. My ministry diminishes. You see how, you see how that can go? But he didn't. Why? Because he had a humble tenacity that shaped his perspective and attitude on what God had called him to do. So the first thing I want us to see here is this. is we see John, I think these would, be, these would be principles for us. We see him rooted in the sovereignty of God. Now, the sovereignty of God simply means that God sits on his throne... He created everything. He controls everything. There is nothing happening in this world that he is not aware of, that he does not see, that he is not in control of. There is nothing that shakes him off his throne. We say, it can be chaos on this earth, but there is always, always, always stability in heaven because he is sovereign. And friends, we need to anchor ourselves to his sovereignty Because he then has called you and me to do certain things for his glory. Notice what John says. He says, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So he recognizes that anything that's happening, anything that these disciples are talking about, ultimately is a gift that comes from God. Now let's look at the context a little bit. In your your Bibles, I want you to look at a few verses of Scripture here. And this, again, we're just kind of seeing the context here. And I want you to notice that the way the word gift is used. John 3.16, all right? For God so loved the world that what? He gave his son. John 4, which we haven't gotten to yet, verses 7 through 10, Jesus is interacting with the Samaritan woman at the well, and he answers her, and he says, and this is verses, I'm not exactly sure what verse that is, but 7 to 10, he says, if you knew the gift of God, okay, and then John 4.15, she he responds and says, Sir, give me this water. And she's talking about the spiritual truth that he was saying, you can have this. There's this idea of this gift being talked about and, 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 and being, being transferred to uh, those by God And ultimately, if you think about what John is saying here, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. God determines who's going to have what, and if this person has a particular gift and it causes them to rise, and God is at work with that, then I'm going to step back and I'm going to say, God, you are sovereign, this is what you choose, and I'm okay with that because you've called me to something different. I mean, why is it in the context of a town, you have one church And you have maybe another church across town. One church seems to be booming and growing, and another church is not booming and growing, and it has nothing to do with the, might want to say, the wow factor and all this kind of stuff. It's just a sovereign thing that God has called one person to one ministry and one person to another ministry, and that's okay. That happens why is it that you know you go to home group maybe and someone says man you know i talked to this person at work today and and uh, or yesterday or whenever it was and you know i shared the gospel and wow they started they, they prayed and then the next week the same thing happens this person seems to be very very evangelistic and you're talking to people and you're getting nowhere god gives gifts to whom he gives gifts he's sovereign we must learn to anchor ourselves to his sovereignty and, as we looked last week in another passage, Ephesians 4.7, I was just reflecting on this. It says, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Ephesians 4.8, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Ephesians 4.11, And he gave the apostles, the, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. See, these, these, these gifts are all part of God's doing for his people and for his glory. And so God's sovereignty is always... Always, always the anchor we hold on to when wrestling with trials, whatever they may be. So this is a general maxim, a general principle for us to live by. Secondly, he was rejoicing in his God-given role. And I think this really helps us understand the heart of John. um, But it also is a, a, a way to teach us a little bit about ourselves and what God's called us to. Notice verse 28 and following. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. But I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now, we have in these few verses here this imagery of the bridegroom. And again, this is one of those pictures that rises up in the text that really describe who Jesus is. He is the bridegroom. That's what's going on here. And the church, of course, is the bride. And John identifies himself as what? The friend of the bride. We would call that today best man. Okay? We'll get back to the specifics of that. But this is not a new idea. And I think in your handout you have a number of verses there. We don't have to turn to them right now, but just listen as I go through just a few portions of some of that. In Isaiah, in the Old Testament here, we have this imagery um, begin. And it really has to do with God and, um, and, and Israel and that relationship that is there. And in in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5, it says, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. So he uses this, this bridegroom bride relationship as a means to describe his relationship with Israel. And then Israel's attitude toward God is fleshed out in Jeremiah 2.2. 2. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. In Hosea chapter 2, and of course that's a, just a wonderful picture of how, how Hosea married himself to a harlot as a picture of where Israel was at that time. And, and God repeatedly says in this particular passage, I will betroth you to me and he says, forever, and in righteousness, and in justice, and in steadfastness, and in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And so there's this wonderful picture of, of a husband and a wife, or a bridegroom and a bride coming together in the Lord's relationship with Israel. So, so it's, not a, it's not a new concept when it rises up in the New Testament, okay? That's the point. This is an Old Testament concept that is now being brought up by John and by Jesus in the context of of his ministry for, to help us understand who he is. Um, now, in the New Testament, we have 2 Corinthians 11.2. It says, I betrothed you to one husband. Ephesians 5, of course, that classic passage there on Christ is the, is the bridegroom and he is preparing the church, right? He's nurturing it. He's cleansing it, ultimately. And then in Mark chapter 2, we also have another description there of this relationship as of, of Christ and the church and this bridegroom and and bride relationship is is fleshed out. And then in Revelation, ultimately, we do have the church, and we have all believers coming together in kind of a a crescendo with this theme. It talks there, the bride adorned for her husband, the bride, the, the wife of the lamb, and ultimately, chapter 22, verse 17, the bride who prays concerning the Messiah, come. That bride, of course, there is the church looking back at Um, those churches that were talked about at the beginning of Revelation. The point here is this. This is not a new concept. It's a beautiful concept. It's a beautiful way of understanding who Jesus is in this picture as the bridegroom, who the church is as that bride. And now, to help us understand the role of John, he is the friend of the bridegroom. He is the best man. And what's the significance of that? Well, there is a cultural significance that is going on here. And... The first thing I think we need to understand is that that friend of the bridegroom was responsible to make sure all the preparations for the wedding were in order. Now, typically a best man today, he just kind of shows up and he has the ring, right? That's usually the role. But in that context, the the, the best man or that friend of the bridegroom had greater responsibility for the actual wedding and, and the marriage activity. Remember it was a long celebration. Um, another thing that is true is that he had a responsibility after the celebration, <clears throat> and while the, while the, the new bride, uh, that just recently gotten married, went into, might want to say, the honeymoon chambers, it was his responsibility to stand outside the door and to make sure that no other person, other man in particular, would go in there, that only the, the new husband would go in there. It was a responsibility that he had to make sure that everything was done right and everything was done decently. And so it speaks into the context of what's going on here because it says he waits until the groom arrives and he, he leaves with joy. And he, he leaves with joy because he hears the voice of the bridegroom. It means the, the, the groom is there. And now they are going to celebrate together in the consummation of their marriage. And he now, having allowed the bridegroom into the chamber, has fulfilled his responsibility, has accomplished what God has called him to do in the function and the role of the friend of the bridegroom. I mean, it's a great picture here. I, I mean, just practically speaking, the bride may be beautiful. He may actually have a great affection for her, but the bride belongs to the bridegroom. And the friend of the bridegroom is doing all he can to make sure that they are taken care of and they're provided for. And so John's role and function here, there in the context of what's going on, is that he is the friend of the bridegroom. He is the one then who is, <clears throat> who is preparing the way of the Lord. He is doing all he can to make sure that, that all the details are taken care of so that when the Lord comes, he can now meet his bride. you get that? And what's happening here is in the context of all this complaining and, and the fear and the emotions, John is responding and saying yeah listen, you know, God gives gifts to who he's going to give gifts. But secondly he understands his role. His role is not to be the bridegroom. His role is to be the friend of the bridegroom. And he understands his role and when he understands his role then he's not going to be challenged, he's not going to be stretched by sinful inclinations to go outside of his role and function. Now the point here for us is this, what is your role? And when you understand what your role and function is, then when you see comparisons, when when things that are good come up, where they could go sour because flesh can kick in, you go and you settle yourself in the sovereignty of God, but you also settle yourself in the fact that God has called you to this. And it's okay to be called to something different when someone else over there, who may have, you know, who maybe you interact with, is experiencing different things than you because God's called you to this. Now, parents, you understand what this is like. Some of you had kids that were, you know, straight-A students, you know, easy to get along with, um, obeyed you all the time. I want to talk to you and find out what, what your secret was, but all right. And some of you just had, you know, struggles and burdens, and different children can be different ways. Or maybe, you know, you, in your family you're like, oh, this is chaos, and you're looking over, and this family just seems to be all so sweet and everything together, and you know, and, and life is like that, and it's so easy to say, oh, I wish I had that. Or you look at someone's marriage and it just seems perfect. You're like, oh, I wish I had that. And it's very easy for discontent. To get in there. But let me tell you something. God hasn't called you to be that marriage. God has called you to be his marriage with the person that he's called you to. He's called you to raise your children up with all their different sinful nuances. That's what he's called you to. doesn't matter what other people are doing in one sense, right? I mean, it does, but not in the sense of that shouldn't drive what you do. Your responsibility is to do what God's called you to do. That's your role. That's your function. Those are your responsibilities. Give them to God. Glorify him with it careful that you're not allowing sin to creep in and to undermine what it is you're doing for his glory well so what is your role there's a third thing that he does here he remembers his messiah in particular he remembers um, to uh, the the person to whom he is called to live for and of course that is the messiah and this is where this wonderful statement comes from he must increase but i must decrease in other words it's not about me I remember back we were going through the story of Jonah. Remember that? It's not about me. It's about him. It's about God. It's about Christ. And so he's understanding, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. It's the bridegroom that is supposed to be getting the attention. Not me. Not me at all. So, go back to John 1, if you would, please. If you have your Bibles, John 1. Let's just remind ourselves right from the beginning what John, or how John is being described. Chapter 1, verses 6 and following. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Is that pretty clear about what his role is? See, he's not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. He is supposed to shine I'm not the one that's supposed to shine. He's the one that's supposed to be radiant. I'm not the one that's supposed to be radiant. It was clear what his role was. Now John, who is writing this, understands that he is painting a picture here of John the Baptist and his relationship to Christ, and in particular for a reason. You can sum- summarize that relationship like this. Not me, him. Three words. Now, all of this narrative, all of this narrative, All of this this conflict and now John's comparison of himself to Christ is all pushing us to this next passage of Scripture, these next few verses that will help us to see that Jesus Christ ultimately is supreme. So here we have the priority of a heavenly testimony. John the Apostle, the one who is writing this gospel, is now speaking, having given us this wonderful testimony from John the Baptist John, the apostle, the writer of this gospel, now begins to paint a picture of his testimony of who Jesus is. He's backfilling for the reader why Jesus must increase. And honestly, guys, as, as I studied this, this passage just, just blew me away with the things that were, were revealed in this particular text. And remember, as John is painting for us a picture, he's trying to give us evidences about Jesus' so that we will believe that he is the Christ, and that through believing we will have life. Notice verse 31. question is this. Why does Jesus need to increase? Number one, um, because Christ is supreme in his origin. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. All right, so... The comparison here is between Jesus and John the Baptist. Who is the one that comes from the earth? John the Baptist. Jesus comes from above. Now, it's not that Jesus, you know, somehow connected with uh, some vacation organization and he took a vacation to heaven and happened to go visit and tour it for a little bit and then came back down to earth. No, Jesus is from above in the sense that is his life home. That is his dwelling place. That is his origin, right? In the beginning was the Word. That is is ultimately his residence, although he has now pitched his tent among us, we would say in the Gospels, and now he has ascended back to heaven. So Jesus is above and ultimately is above all. And we have John then, in comparison, who is limited in his knowledge, who is finite in his understanding. Why? Because he is from the earth. Now this is just a wonderful picture of the fact that Jesus is not just another guy who is going around giving a message. He is above, and he is above then all. That's what it says right there in verse 31. He who comes from heaven is above all all. He is supreme. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, verse 14 of chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's describing then the fact that Jesus is above, and because of that, he is above all. He is supreme because of his origin. He's also supreme because of his word, or you might want to say his testimony. Now imagine if you would please that tomorrow, just imagine all of you have jobs and tomorrow you go into work and your boss gives you a message and if your boss gives you a message what are you supposed to do with that? You're supposed to listen to it, you're supposed to understand it, you're supposed to do whatever the message says you're supposed to do, right? And you want to do it and you want to do it with, with a, a good heart and with passion so that you can please the boss and you can... Make sure that everything he was asking you to do is done, right? So that's what happens that day. The next day you go to work. Now the president of the company walks into the office, sits you and your boss down, and he has a message for both of you. Both of you now are going to listen to the president and his message. want to listen to it, make sure you understand it, make sure you're doing what he's asking you to do, right? You get the picture there? All right, so John comes with a testimony. Is that testimony good? Is it accurate? Is it reliable? Absolutely. It's a great testimony. It's a great witness. And so what's going on here is not an undermining of John's witness at all. It's an affirmation of John's witness. But there is a witness, there is a testimony that is greater than John's. Because John's testimony is is one that has been given to him by God to speak to others about, right? Now let's read this passage. Let's let's have a little little further understanding of what's going on here. Oh, by the way, John chapter 5. Turn there if you would, please. Just want want, want us to understand, make sure we understand the the impact of John's testimony. John chapter 5, verse 35 and following. Jesus is speaking here and he's speaking about John the Baptist. He was a burning... And shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony I have give, I, that I have is greater than that of John. Okay. So now we jump down to, in our passage, verse 32. So go back to chapter 3 and verse 32. He, that's Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now, here's what's going on. Jesus' testimony is not a testimony because somehow he was in heaven and he heard, he simply happened to be in the same room as the Godhead and they were talking about the things that needed to be shared with mankind. Jesus saw and he heard because he is part of the godhead he is not just someone who is on the sidelines looking he is actually god and what he says comes from the boardroom you might want to say of god it is direct it is complete it is full and what jesus said is what god says so it's not that john's testimony is bad it's good it's just that when you compare them together Jesus is supreme in his testimony, in his word, in what he says. So Jesus wasn't a spectator in heaven. He was essential to the authoring of what the Godhead desired and wanted to be communicated. Here's the third thing. His resources are also supreme. Notice again what it, what it says. Um, for he, verse 34, for he whom God had sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So the first resource here is the Spirit without measure. Okay. Now, what does that mean? In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit had this ministry of, of really coming and, and it really empowering prophets and, and different people for ministry. So when they spoke, they were given a measure of the Spirit so that they could do what God was calling them to do. They were given a measure of the Spirit. Jesus was given the Spirit without measure. In other words, when Jesus was on this earth, when he was doing what he was called to do, when he was accomplishing the the God-ordained activity, which he was in agreement with, he had the full resource, the full backing, the full ability of the Holy Spirit there accomplishing what needed to be accomplished in in his power. It wasn't just in measure, it was the full resource of the Holy Spirit. That's the picture here. Secondly, we have the fact that he has authority over all things. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. This is not in all things like what we read earlier where you know, the disciples are coming along and saying, you know, are, he's baptizing all the people, which wasn't true. It was an exaggeration. What we have here, though, is a complete statement saying he was given all things into his hand. So listen, it's not surprising then that really for Jesus it was nothing for him to turn water into wine. It was nothing for Jesus to open blind eyes. It was really nothing to raise a man from the dead or to multiply five loaves into thousands. Why? Because he has authority over all things and he has the full resource of the Holy Spirit at work. Now this is the Messiah that we're talking about. This is the one that, that John the Baptist labored to prepare the way for. He was the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And when Jesus came on the scene, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's pointing all of the attention, he's pointing all of of the eyes and the hearts to the one who is the Messiah, who ultimately is supreme. So all this passage, although we see this this conflict, we see this struggle from good things turn into sour things, is all driving us to a place to say, what is our role? What is our function? And ultimately, all of that is settled underneath the fact that Jesus Christ is to be glorified because He is supreme in His origin, in His testimony, in His resources. He is the one we depend on. He is the one that we find our sustenance from. He is the one that brings full satisfaction. Now, John's a great character. I love him. But God isn't calling me to be like John. God is calling me to nestle myself under the wonderful, glorious, gracious arms, hands, however you want to paint the picture, of the Savior whose name is Jesus Christ. And this is all driving us to ultimately two questions and two statements you might want to say that that conclude this section. And here they are, the first one is this, we we must receive his testimony that God is true. Go back again to verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, All right, Boom, I am agreeing this is true, it's like I'm I'm, signing in blood, so to speak. I am agreeing that this is true, I am sealing this testimony. If I am receiving this testimony, I am saying, God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So to believe Jesus is to believe God. Go back to John chapter 3, verse 11. I know as we went through that passage, we were talking about regeneration. This particular verse kind of came out, and I think as we go back now, having looked at this, we might come to a better conclusion as to what it means. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. And we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. We, we, the Godhead, we, we, the Godhead knows, sees, and understands what's going on. We speak. When When God speaks, Jesus speaks. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. But when Jesus speaks, it is the greatest word ever uttered. When God speaks, it is the greatest word ever uttered. Now, I'm not saying the red letters of your Bible pop up and are more more significant than anything else. No, the doctrine of inspiration says this is all God's word. And all of God's word is is there for us to pay attention to and to listen to and, and to find strength from and to find guidance in because it is Jesus who is supreme. Why would you want to go and find counsel anywhere else? Why would you want to hop on a plane or on a boat and go to the Himalayas and go up in the middle of a mountain for a guy to sit there and go um when you have the Word of God that gives you direction and and focus in so many different ways and for all of life's issues? But so many people do. Of all the things to believe, what Jesus is saying is to be believed most of all. We must receive His testimony That God is true. Now friends, the practical dynamic of that is not saying, you know, here's our doctrinal statement, I believe that. It's saying, in the the minutia of your daily life, what you said about what I just went through is true, God. That person cut me off. And I have these emotions rising up. And you're saying to me, you know what? My grace is sufficient for you. You do not have to respond in kind do I believe you or do I not believe you? See, these are battles that we face every day. Do we believe what God says is true? Does, does what God says about our circumstances and our trial and our, whatever the, the struggle might be, do we believe what he says is true? If so, then our lives will reflect it. The second thing is this, we must believe in the Son or we risk having the wrath of God remain on us. Now, that's not a popular message in our times, is it? In fact, I think it would be more likely that um, most people in the context of a church or a religious gathering would love for me to stand up and say, God is love, and God loves you unconditionally. Just kind of leave it there. But if I were to do that, my friends, I would not be giving you the correct understanding of the gospel. It would be incomplete, it would be distorted, and it would leave you in bondage. All right. Now, the reality is, and what this passage tells us, is that if if I'm going to be faithful to you, if I'm going to be honest with you, that we must see that this, this wrath that is being talked about is something that is important to God. Read it again, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So if you believe in the Son, you will have eternal life. If you do not obey the Son, get this, you will not see life. And isn't the story of John, isn't the the gospel ultimately about life? That's what we've been saying, that's what John said. And if you don't see life, then it says you will remain under the wrath of God. Now, if he says you will remain under the wrath of God, what does that mean? That means that those without Christ are in this constant state of being under God's wrath. So when a child is born, we say they're born in sin. That's not saying they're born, the, the, the act of, of, you know, Creating life is sinful it means that they they are continuing this 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 life of sin because it's naturally in them because of what happened through Adam is passed down through all mankind and so because of their sin they're under God's wrath but listen God's wrath is being held back there are times when drips come down God's sovereignty that happens and his wrath shows a little bit here and there and there are consequences for sin but as a child of God We stand under the protection and the righteousness of Christ and we are protected from God's wrath because God's wrath is poured down on us, but Jesus covers us with himself and he absorbs it all. Right? Now, having said all that, it still is true to say that those without Christ are in this condition that is described as being under God's wrath. Friends, that is truth. That is the dire need of the day for people to hear. Yes, people need to hear that God loves them. But people also need to hear why it is that God has extended his grace. Is it simply because they need to just simply say, well, I'll follow Christ? Or is it because they need to understand their sinfulness and because of their sinfulness that they are under wrath? Because if they do not obey him, if we do not obey him, what does the text say? The wrath of God remains on him. And friends, that is a hard message. But it is a true message. Two incredibly important statements that we must do business with. Now listen, Jesus Christ came to this earth, hear this please, not to feed the poor, although he did that. Not to heal people who had broken limbs, although he did that. Not to cast out demons, although he did that. He came to the earth, he preached his message of the gospel, went to the cross, and on that cross, he hung there and took upon himself the sin collectively of mankind so that if we believe in him which means that we appropriate the fact that we are sinners deserving of death and that his sacrifice on the cross is a payment sufficient to satisfy the debt required by God for our sin, that he accomplished that, that through believing in him, we would have life. That is what he came to do. Now, friends, that is central. That is the gospel. And if we say to ourselves, hey, listen, I don't know if I need to receive this testimony as true, we're in a tough place. If we say to ourselves, "Ah, I don't know about believing in the Son, listen, the wrath of God will continue to remain on you. This is an evangelistic message. John's Gospel is an evangelistic message. Please, please hear this. All of our struggles, all of our difficulties, all of the things that we wrestle with with our emotions and feelings and all that kind of stuff find themselves satisfied Because Jesus Christ is supreme. Those disciples didn't need to go that direction and and feel eclipsed or like their their rabbi was going to be upstaged at all. If they would simply understand, Christ is supreme. He's the one that ushers gifts to men as, as He decrees He's going to do it. We have a particular role. Everything that needs to be done needs to be done for His glory. We'll leave it with Him. The only way you can come to that place is to recognize that he is supreme. And the gospel is not something we create for ourselves. It is what God has done for us. And it took place in heaven. And Jesus was sitting there in that discussion. Before the world was created. (laughs) And we are the recipients of his grace and his goodness and we need to celebrate the fact that he is supreme. Now, friends, I realize we're, we're, we're ultimately just stopping, and we're, we're pausing, and we're looking at Christ, who is supreme. And I'm just asking you to, to take, take all your, your struggles, all your trials, all those battles, those internal things. Maybe you were in a fight this week. Maybe you're, you're struggling over finances, or, or maybe there's some job issues going on, or whatever it might be, and you're you're saying, why, and how, and and what? he, He is supreme, and even your circumstance is rooted underneath by the fact that he is sovereign and he is accomplishing his purposes, even through your trial, even through your difficulty, even through the battle that you're having with those emotions. He is supreme, and he deserves our utmost praise. Lord, help us today. We have a lot to think about. It's so easy for us, Lord, to take good things and turn them into sinful things. And Lord, part of the reason we do that is because we have forgotten that you are supreme. And that you accomplish what you desire to accomplish. And Lord, it's so easy for us to measure things in life by our own understanding and our own Feelings. And, Lord, I, I get what those disciples were going through. I get the idea of being eclipsed or being upstaged or, or maybe a, a wrong they felt was being showered in their direction. And, and yet, Lord, all you were doing was fulfilling your plan. And, Lord, help us not to fight you in your fulfillment of your plan through us, but, Lord, to find our place, to see our role, to understand it. But ultimately, Lord, in, in all of that, to see you as supreme. Lord, you have a unique origin. Your your testimony is unique. And Lord, your resources are absolutely incredible. We adore you. Lord, we we do the best that we can to love you with everything we have. Help us, Lord, today to be humble and to be recipients, Lord, of what it is that you want to do in us. Take the words that we've shared today, Lord, allow us to meditate on them, to to feed on them. And Lord, would you have your way with us? We ask in your name, amen.